every day we follow a routine. We eat, we work, we relax, repeat. Many of us desire to make a difference, but we don't know how. What if there was one day that was a little different than the rest? Maybe our routine is the same, but the purpose changes. A day where every action has a deeper impact. Each stroke on a keyboard or minute in a meeting translates into differences being made all over the globe. One Day to Feed the World does exactly that. When you give one day of your salary to Convoy of Hope, every action you do that day translates into momentum. Momentum to make a greater impact. Through children's feeding programs, agricultural training, women's empowerment initiatives, and disaster relief, Convoy of Hope is making an enormous impact around the world. We may not have equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. No one person can do everything, but everyone can do something. That's the power of one. One day to feed the world. Well, good afternoon, Centerway Church. More on Convoy of Hope in a minute. We are so glad that you're with us. We just want to welcome everybody that's in the room and everybody online. Hello to you uh, that are gathering with us there. Um, we just want to welcome you and say we're super glad to be worshiping with you today. Uh, my name is Meredith. My husband, Claude, and I are the lead pastors of this lovely church. And I'm just going to take a moment today to talk through some information that will hopefully be helpful uh, to those of you in the room and those of you online today. Um, for those of you online, some of these items may not apply to you, but a lot of this can happen through our website, so go ahead and check that out if I don't answer some of your questions here. Um, we would love for you to share your information with us, and that goes for whether if you're a guest or even if you just have information to update. Um, you can do that through the info cards that we have at the info center or in the back of the room. Um, there are some exciting things coming up, so if you have a new email address or something, we don't want you to miss that. Um, if you are a guest and you want to share your information, we're not going to stalk you or hunt you down. It's just simply a way for us to follow up, to get some feedback uh, from you, and to say hi, that we're glad you're here. Um, there are, like I said, a couple ways to do that. Um, one is through the info card, but you can also do that through an app that we use called the YouVersion app or the Bible app. Um, the thing that's also good about that app is you can follow along through the message and um, you can take notes. You can also give through that app. And speaking of giving, uh, we love to be generous here at Centerway. If you want to give, you can do that through the app. There's an offering box in the back. You can also do that online, however you feel led. Um, there are ways to connect and engage throughout the week if you're interested in that. Uh, we have wallpaper to put on your devices to remind you of the application that we do each week. Uh, there's social media. We have a Spotify playlist of all of our songs. And there's Monday, Wednesday, Friday devotionals that our team curates to go right along with the message. You can um, find that on the website or you can even subscribe to that if you want to get them de delivered directly to your inbox. Um, most of what I just mentioned would be on the messages page of the website. So feel free to check that out. If you have any questions, if you have feedback, if you have ideas, if you need prayer, um, please email us at connect at centerwaychurch.com. That's the best way to do that. Um, you can always be taking next steps. We always want to be growing in our faith, right? We don't want to be stagnant, and there's ways to do that. You can uh, serve. You can sign up to serve. There's lots of ways to do that. You can be spiritually coached. You can be water baptized. Uh, you can investigate becoming a Centerway steward. And a lot of that, again, can happen on the Next Steps page or at the Next Steps area out there. I believe Eric's going to be out there at the end. So before we um, move on today, we just have to recognize our veterans. This coming Thursday is Veterans Day, and we are so thankful for all those that have served. We know that there are many of you in here, maybe even some that have served or are connected to somebody that has, and we just want to take a moment and recognize the great sacrifice and um, just honor everybody today. Can we just give them a round of applause in case they're in the room or watching online? We're so thankful. 
Um, just a, two quick reminders, or one's a reminder and one's kind of new. Um, this Wednesday is the last day to, to reserve your mini, your free uh, mini photo session. And it's also the last day, like if you want to tell your neighbors and friends, you can take some of these cards. There are multiple places out there. You can share our social media posts if you want to do that. But this is a way for us to serve you. It's a free gift, but also to serve our community. We love to do that in many ways all throughout the year. And this is just one of them. We have two amazing photographers. It's not just like, hey, we got some people from the church taking pictures. These are legit people. um, And we're excited to serve you in that way. The last thing I want to talk about is the video that we started off with. And that's Convoy of Hope. And we do this every year. Well, I say every year. We're, we're, we're a young church. For those of you that don't know, this is only a couple years we've been doing this. But we intend to do this every year around Thanksgiving time. And Convoy of Hope, if you want to check them out, you can. we vetted them. But they're an incredible international organization. They do something called, they have many initiatives all throughout the year. But this one's called One Day to Feed the World. And the premise is that our one day of income changes somebody's every day. So the challenge is to consider giving one day's income at this offering. Now, you don't have to. You could give less. You could give more. Um, but, you know, we want to be generous and open-handed. And this is going to impact people locally in the U.S. and all around the world. And so two Sundays from today, the 21st, is going to be our Convoy of Hope offering. And that's a special day for us. We love doing that every year. Um, there's information on your seats. There's more information on the website if you're interested. Um, your kids are going to be involved too, which is really great. They might only bring a quarter or a dollar or whatever it would be. They might want to ask family and friends, or they might want to do chores to earn some money. I'm not sure what it is, but we would encourage you as parents to get your kids involved. Teach them generosity from a young age. We believe in doing that with all the generations, right? Um, So I think that's it. If you have any questions on Convoy of Hope, we're happy to answer any questions that you have. Um, Come talk to us at the next steps table, but um, you'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks. So here is what to expect for the rest of the gathering today. As soon as I'm done here praying, Deidre is going to come and read scripture for us. Claude's going to be commuting from the Bible, and then we're going to respond to the word by singing. So let's pray together. God, we give you praise. We give you praise that sending Jesus for us changed everything. And we thank you that the outflow of such a great love is just our love to you. We don't come here religiously. We don't come here to check a box. We come here um, because of the great love that you've shown us and to honor you in return. So would you just have your way in this place from top to bottom? Um, Let your just glory be evident and let us respond to you with love in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello. My name is Deidre. I'll be reading the text this morning, um, and you can follow along in your scripture journal, you can follow along in your Bible, or I believe it'll be up on the screen. Um, I'm going to read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through four, 13, I'm sorry, 1 through 13. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, brought, bought spices I'm sorry, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he, is going before, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid.
Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared, appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Thanks, Sejah. We're continuing in our, uh, our series of uh, entitled Within Walking Distance. And today we begin, as was just read, uh, the final chapter. And so we're actually wrapping up the series and wrapping up the book of Mark, if you can believe that. Um, today, the message is entitled specifically uh, Grace. So grace is within walking distance. Something I want to address on the front end, uh, if you have uh, one of these scripture journals um, that we hand out, if you don't have one of them and would like them, they're in the back by the um, offering uh, box. You can take them. They're free for you to, to use. If you watch or listen online too, I should mention, we'll mail one to you if you're interested. But if you have this um, resource, you'll see a notation for verses 9 through 20. And if you have a different Bible or something, more than likely you'll see a notation in asterisks or something. I just want to explain that before we jump in and you're wondering if I'm avoiding it because uh, I'm not. Uh, so verses 9 through 20 are not seen in the earliest manuscripts that um, the word of God is actually um, translated from. They are found in former ones, so late ones that are referenced, and the question might be, well, why weren't they just eliminated then as not being part of the Bible? And we could have an entire conversation about that because it's a rather complicated answer, except to say um, that they were determined because they were in later manuscripts and because they are harmonic, and what that basically means is that there's a harmony of the Gospels. So they fall in line with what the other Gospels communicate. So they're not contrary to the Gospel story. It's just a question as to whether they were written by Mark and immediately following. So we, because they're part of Scripture, we're going to communicate them as part of Scripture. And because they don't conflict with any of the other Gospels, um, then we're going to move forward with them. So I just wanted to say that off the top of, uh, as we begin, I'll probably say it again next week uh, as we'll wrap up the chapter completely in that text. And so um, just bear with us as I kind of give that explanation. If you have any further questions about that, we can talk about it. Um, but that's why that notation is in there. Uh, I wanted to start kind of in a unique place. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time on social media, but every once in a while I'll have something shared with me and then that's where I kind of like look and am either amazed at something ridiculous that someone's doing uh, or entertained or whatever it might be. And it was somewhere around a year ago, I think, that I got uh, someone shared a, uh, an Instagram post, I think it was, where David Blaine, if you don't know who David Blaine is, he's an illusionist, and uh, David Blaine had been hired by the Lakers to go into their um, gymnasium and into their practice facility and stuff to do illusions and tricks with their team members. And uh, it kind of spread by wildfire. He was doing it with different team members and different players. The first one that I saw uh, was with Anthony Davis and LeBron James. And there's this uh, moment where he has Anthony Davis take a card and they sign it and they go in a separate room and they're all being paranoid that there's no way he's going to fool them. He can't trick them. And so he tells them to one of them to hold his right hand and one of them to hold his left hand. He has short sleeves on and he has them put a card in and then they're, you know, 
they're waiting to see how he's going to reveal this card, and he touches the deck three times, and as he does that, the deck gets smaller, and they just get completely freaked out. They're like, where are the cards going? And uh, so LeBron James like walks away, and Anthony Davis is like, you can't let go of his arm, and he's like, I can't, I can't handle it. He's like freaked out, walks out of the room, and uh, Anthony Davis is laughing, and other people are like awestruck by it. And um, so I started looking up to see what were some of the other illusions that he did. And so he does another illusion in like a team practice, and I'm not going to go through all the details, but basically he has someone pick a card. They pick a card, put it in there, and he tells one of the players in the, in the audience to, to pick the card, and he's going to call out what his card is. And so he says, okay, how many cards down is it? And he's like, nine. And he goes, all right. So David Blaine goes and sits down. He goes, all right, count down nine cards, and that's where the card will be. So he counts down nine cards, and he says, okay, what card did you pick? And I can't remember what it was, something of hearts, I think seven of hearts. And so he flips it over and he goes, yeah, it's a seven of hearts. He's like, see, it's amazing. He goes, yeah, but that's not my card. And he goes, oh yeah, we kind of did the trick wrong. He's like, so he wasn't picking your card. He was telling you where to find his card. And he's like, but where's my card? He's like, oh, your card's under your watch. He's like, what? And he looks under his watch and everyone's like, "Ah!" they're all like start freaking out and like people are laughing and he's like, no, 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 no. He just like walks away. Like he's totally uncomfortable, drops the deck of cards, freaking out. And so the reason why I share some of those stories is because we're familiar with kind of illusions and tricks and things like that. And we're kind of in awe of it. But I want to ask you this question. How do you react to something amazing? How do you react to something amazing? It seems like there's a wide array of reactions that we're all kind of wired differently, what it is that we do in that moment. You know, some of us are just kind of like stunned. When we see something amazing, we just stand there and watch in awe. Some of us stand silent, others scream. (laughs) Some of us have this nervous reaction of laughter. Like we're just laughing like, ha ha ha, it's amazing. Super uncomfortable, and yet we just laugh. It's all different forms of kind of this disbelief in the moment, this amazement Some of us are even fear struck with what's almost uncomfortable at a moment. It's like, it's so amazing and we can't describe it. We can't explain away how it's possible. And so as a result, we're almost fearful. It's uncomfortable. You see, we all react differently, but those reactions all come as a result of the same source. We as humans, Christian or not, and I realize we have every different type of person in the room or watching or listening after, respond to something amazing with a sense of awe. That's the thing we all have in common. That's the source is there's something in us that has a sense of awe. And it's a result of that sense of awe that we either scream, laugh, run out of the room, whatever it might be. But it's it's the same source, awe. We're in awe of what we can't explain, what we can't rationalize, what we can't wrap our mind around. What we've witnessed is so amazing that it disrupts our perception or even how we process reality. We just, we want to put handles on it and it's too off-putting. It's too troublesome. We can't just explain it away. We're awestruck. And although the reactions all differ, one thing is the same, like it or not, we're all faced with responding to what we can't explain. Now, Reaction is one thing, right? It's like you almost can't control your reaction as much as you want to. You know, I have had family members uh, insist that they're not ticklish and then I'll like tickle them and then they just can't help it. They have a reaction and as much as they want to say that they're not ticklish, they react. And so in moments where we're awestruck, we react. 
I'm not talking necessarily about our initial reaction. I want to go beyond that. I want to say, after the reaction is over, how do you respond? We're faced with responding to what we can't explain. Today, we're faced with responding to something that seems beyond our ability to understand. For generations, it's been talked about. For generations, it's been dismissed or it's been uh, talked about with awe. But no matter how we come today, we have to realize that we are forced to respond to the resurrection of Jesus. Even if our response is to say, it never happened. Regardless of whether you believe in the resurrection of Jesus or you want to dismiss it as something that never took place, the fact is you have a response to this idea of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, it's one thing if a good man, a good and kind man, a wise man that was even a respected teacher, dies a death that he doesn't deserve. But if he then resurrects from the dead, that requires our response. That has implications and it changes everything. It's one thing to respect somebody and have them die. It's another thing when all of a sudden they're alive and well, that requires something of us. Now, there's something that you need to know because if you're not familiar with Jewish history, it might have never dawned on you. Jesus was not the first person in history to have been declared the Messiah. And he wasn't even the last History tells us that there were literally dozens of people, specifically even in the time frame that Jesus lived, that declared themselves the Messiah. There were these messianic movements. Rome was so strangling uh, Israel that they were longing for the Messiah to come and set them free, that there were these people that were rising up. In fact, they even tried to take John the Baptist and declare him the Messiah. He had disciples. It was typical in that society, a, a rabbinic society, which means that there are teachers that would then have people that would follow them and be their disciples, that someone would whisper, you know, we think he's the Messiah. He's the one? Yeah. And so history tells us that there were literally dozens before and after Jesus that were believed to be the Messiah. And in almost all of those cases, this messianic leader, if you will, was killed. And some were actually even executed. All of those cases have one thing in common. According to history, when the leader died, the movement died and the disciples dispersed. Every single one of them with the exception of one, Jesus of Nazareth. Not only did his movement not collapse, but the movement exploded. There was a ripple effect. His disciples didn't disperse in fear. In fact, they mobilized on mission. Most of the disciples, according to history, died as martyrs and with their dying breaths proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the son of God, the Messiah. They laid down their life for it. In fact, even today, the church of Jesus continues to grow. In spite of scandals, in spite of sin issues, in spite of all the things that humanity throws at it, the, the church continues to grow, the con continues to grow because Jesus says that he will grow his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So why, why is it that Jesus was the exception compared to all these other messianic, if you will, leaders. It's because he resurrected. That's the difference. Everyone else, all these other leaders, they stayed dead. They stayed dead. 
And so their disciples didn't lay down their lives. They didn't argue anything on behalf of them. They simply dispersed and the movement died. Jesus didn't stay dead. Verses four through six. And looking up, they saw the stone. They saw the stone that had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? Now, here's the deal. I've, you know, lived a little bit of life. You know, I'd like to think that I'm closer to my birth than I am my death, but, you know... I've lived a little bit of life and I know what it's like to to read something and say, listen, Jesus rose from the dead. Look, the Bible tells us so. And you're like, I have a question. What if I don't believe in the Bible? You know, like that's the way I grew up. I was kind of that logical thinker that was like, that's so nice. So your evidence is the Bible that you're preaching from. Super great source. I'm gonna write a little story and then reference that story as truth. I wrote a story about how Joe is the Messiah. And you know how I can know? is because my book says Joe is the Messiah. <laughs> so we can't simply sit here and say, oh, Jesus didn't stay dead because the Bible tells us he didn't. I mean, I guess we could, but then we'd be guilty of kind of a straw man syndrome where we just say, like, the world doesn't know what they're talking about. The Bible's the truth. And although I do believe the Bible's truth, the fact is we have to understand what is it that supports the validity, the veracity of the truth of the Bible. I don't know if veracity makes sense there. I said the word, does it? A little bit, move on, all right. (laughs) Oh gosh, you should be married to my wife for a little while, it's amazing, but she knows some words. She's like, that did not make sense to say that word then, Claude. I'm like, all right, veracity's not in my notes, but I think it makes sense, so let's go on with the veracity. Jesus, uh, (laughs) now I know it doesn't make sense. Jesus was, uh, was dead, but now, The stone is rolled away, and he's alive. So now this is a great story, possibly a legend. Or is it an illusion? Is it an illusion? Some people would sit back, and they would argue, like, you know what? He's a good dude that that did some things, but I'm not sure that he rose from the dead. Or is it historic and amazing? Is it something that is historic, that causes us to respond in awe. There might, be, uh, there might be some people in the room that are able to say, like, I, I don't believe that it happened. I don't believe any of this. I don't believe that that's true and that's okay. I want you to kind of bear with me as we move forward. But there are others of us in the room or listening and watching that might say, I believed it happened. Like, Pastor Claude, it doesn't matter what you say. I believe the word of God is true and Jesus rose from the dead. I have no explanation, but I know that it happened. I just know that I know. And so let me ask this specifically and first to the Jesus follower. Do you live as if it's historic and amazing? In other words, do you daily live in awe of the gospel? Do you daily live your life responding, not reacting, but responding to what it is that you say you know is true? That's so personally convicting to me. Because it's one thing to to sit in church and be like, I believe it. He rose. He rose on the third day. Amen. 
do I live like he did? Do I live as if it's a historic, amazing fact that causes me to daily live in awe of the reality and the implications of the gospel? I have three kids, and uh, when they were younger, I used to do some some things basically to entertain myself um, because I loved their little reactions to things. And so I would, you know, take a ball and be like, look at the ball, watch the ball, watch this, look, the ball's in this hand, right? And then I would just palm it in this hand and I'd be like, all right, I got the ball right here. <gasps> and I'd do something like that and they'd look to that hand and I'd slip the ball in my pocket and be like, where'd it go? And they're like, wow, it's amazing. Like, dad is amazing. And uh, so they would do other, like make this disappear. You know, I remember them like pulling out things that were like a ginormous teddy bear, like dad, make it disappear. Like, I don't know that I can. Yes, you can, dad. I've seen the things that you've made disappear. If anyone can make it disappear, dad, it's you. (laughs) Like, and that's so sure you understand what's happening. I mean, they were just completely awestruck. I mean, one of the things that used to enamor them the most was, I mean, I'll just, I'll do it for you right now because it's this incredible. And I'll tell you right now, if you're listening to the podcast, you're missing out huge. Because this right here is my hand, right? Now, what, I don't understand why my wife's laughing. I know why. Because she's still amazed by it. And so I would, I would go like this and I would cover up my hand. And then in a moment of brilliance, watch everybody prepare to be amazed. Look. Look at that. I'm making my thumb come apart. It's okay. It's okay. I didn't really do it. Meredith still is completely blown away by that trick. She wakes up sometimes in the night and says, Claude, disconnect the end of your thumb. I'm in awe of it. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. But then you have to go right back to bed. (laughs) I know. And, And that's exactly what she says. Wow. And then she just goes back to sleep after she sees it. And Every time, actually, it's okay. I did not disconnect my thumb. Um, so spoiler alert, they're both there. I know, okay. So the point is this. I would do stupid things like that, and they would just be in awe, as I was in awe of the ridiculous things that my parents used to do. That, I mean, I remember I had an Uncle Jack that used to do really bad magic tricks that I would really fall for hard. And the thing that was amazing about it is that then we would have people over, like family members or just friends, and our kids would be like, my dad does magic. Specifically, like, with their cousins, they'd be like, dad, make it, make it disappear. Be amazed. And so, of course, like, with their cousins, I'd be like, okay, ready? Gone. They're like, what? Because they were young, too, and it was amazing. And uh, to this day, every once in a while, they'll be like, you're really good at magic. I'm like, let's not try it now that you're older. The fact is, they were such in awe. They were so amazed. They were so captivated that they couldn't help but tell everyone. Their response was to communicate what it is that they could not explain. They wanted everybody to experience this sense of awe and wonderment as I made things magically disappear, as I disconnected my thumb and put their nose in my mouth and all of the things that were just absolutely incredible. But the fact is this. At the end of the day, Do you live with that type of childlike faith? Do you live your life in a way that is so in awe of the reality of the gospel that it literally changes the way you live every day that you wake up and say, I need to tell somebody about what God has done in my life. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. There's no explanation for it. And so I must, I must tell everyone I come in contact with because it changes everything. Wait until you meet my Lord. It's convicting, right? 
Because that type of living, it's disruptive. It's uncomfortable. Which is why I think we minimize the doctrine of the resurrection. In the rhythms of our lives, and rarely, rarely if ever, do we wrestle with what I talked about last week, this, this, or the week prior, this idea of soteriology, the study of salvation, the implications of salvation. We rarely wrestle with it because it, it gets too complicated. It requires something of us. It's easier just to react to the gospel. It's easier to just be like, oh, thank you, Lord. It's amazing. I go inside, I feel God's presence. But now to respond, to live as if that is historic truth and to live in amazement of that, that's an entirely different thing. In other words, what are the life implications? Have we allowed the gospel to inform our priorities? Or have we elevated lesser things to become ultimate things? Have we reprioritized our lives for the things of this world? The experiences and the opportunities for our kids, the, the colleges, the grades, the, the, the money-making opportunity, all the things that are they're good things, but we make them ultimate things. We elevate them. And the name for that is idolatry. We're literally raising something above the priority of the truth of the gospel. For some reason, Christendom has marginalized the resurrection to Easter Sunday. But the gospel's larger than that. The implications are greater. The empty tomb should mess with us. It should wreck us every day of our lives. So, for the follower of Jesus and the skeptic alike, is it historic and amazing? Well, ancient historians record something that took place when they, when they would go in a historical document, if you look back in any type of ancient historian, you'll see that the way that they relied on the validity of what it is that they were recording is that they would place living eyewitnesses so that people reading their account would be able to go and find those people to validate what was recorded. That's the way the ancient culture would validate historic documentation. Someone's name listed, the same name listed multiple times were indicators of a historical document or a historical record. They're kind of today's sort of footnotes or citations to validate what it is that was being communicated. The women that are listed in verse one of this chapter, of chapter 16 of Mark, are also referenced in Mark 15, verse 40, and 15, verse 47. Mark is writing and referencing historically. His, his story changes from a narrative to a historical document when he begins naming specific people for no apparent reason. Well, the no apparent reason is because he is validating that what he is saying is historically accurate. He's saying, I guarantee this happened. Go and check for yourself if you don't believe me. Now, that's compelling. On some level, if you're familiar with historical documents, you might say, wow, maybe that has to have a classification of a historical document. But I have to say today, if I'm being honest, for me personally, it's not the most compelling argument for the historic validity, the word I was thinking of, of this account. Let me explain. What I think is most compelling, because it goes deeper than simply witnesses, although witnesses are compelling, is that there was a Greek pagan philosopher by the name of Celsus. Celsus had many different people reference him, have had many different people reference him, and he lived around 80 to 100 years after Jesus. 
And he wrote books attempting to refute Christianity. I mean, he was like all out against Christianity. His main argument was that Jesus' resurrection didn't happen. It was very interesting. Some of his writings, if you read them, he's rather belligerent and in some ways very illogical. It's like he just has an agenda to disprove something. And his argument that the resurrection didn't happen was based primarily on the testimony of women. Now, here's a quote. Don't harm the messenger. I do not agree with him, all right? But this is a direct quote. At one point, when dismantling the argument and the testimony of women, he says, we all know women are hysterical. Their testimony isn't valid. I didn't say it, he said it. Again, no one that has researched Jesus at all argues whether or not Jesus of Nazareth lived, whether or not he walked the earth, that he had a following, that he had incredible teachings, and even that he was crucified. Everyone in history agrees that that took place. But it's the resurrection they have issue with and they want to question. Why is that? Again, because if Jesus resurrected, then he is in fact the Messiah. And that changes everything. That's what changes everything. Now, although it's offensive, it's not shocking that Celsus would discredit the testimony of women. It was a very sexist society where women were marginalized. So why is him saying that so compelling to me? It's because it begs the question, why would people trying to fool others or to create a legend record marginalized women as their eyewitnesses? Think about that for a second. If I'm trying to fool people, I wouldn't fool anyone by trying to validate my story by placing women as the eyewitnesses. I would probably pay some people or find some friends that were just as angry about this story as I was, and I would try to get them to corroborate my story and list them as the eyewitnesses. This is why it's so compelling. Because there's only one reason that you would mention women as eyewitnesses in a highly sexist society. And it's because they were the ones that actually witnessed it. That's the only reason. It actually happened. To me, that's amazing. And to the people then, it's almost unbelievable. But it goes further than that. Let me explain something else. Mark, 10 and Mark, uh, Mark 8 and 10, Jesus says to his disciples, we've talked about this as we walked through if you were with us. He looks at his disciples and he says, I will rise on the third day. I will die. He tells them that. He tells them that he's going to die, that he will be turned over and that they will kill him. He says it so often that his disciples are literally like, hey, Jesus, that is bad for business. Like we're trying to gain a following here. You keep telling people you're going to die. Stop it. Chill out on the whole I'm going to die thing. But Jesus continues to talk about how he will be turned over and that on the third day he will rise. But get this. Not a single disciple went to check on the third day. Isn't that interesting? You ever think about that? He tells them I'm going to die. And he dies. He tells them I'm going to be turned over to the authorities and they're going to kill me. He gets turned over to the authorities and they kill him. And he says, now on the third day I'll rise. And on the third day, not one of the disciples go to check. They didn't think the resurrection was possible either. They didn't think it was possible. They weren't going there to check. They thought it was over. In fact, the women are headed there with spices. For what? 
to anoint a decaying, rotting body. It doesn't say that that these women are headed to the tomb with sandwiches knowing that Jesus is probably going to be hungry from his resurrection. Like nothing like that. No, they're showing up with spices to anoint a body they expect to be there and decaying. I mean, listen, even if you say that Mark is just trying to elevate the perception of women by identifying them as, as eyewitnesses, then you've got to admit that he probably would have painted them in a little bit better light, right? Maybe saying something like, hey, so on the tomb where the disciples were dispersed and afraid, these women of faith gathered together. For Jesus had said he'd be there on the third day and they believed in their savior and so they went, right? You would conjure up something that was at least a little more flattering, but at every turn, Mark is recording way less than flattering things. Way less than flattering things about the future head of the church. He says some really rough things in previous chapters about Peter who was at the time of the writing of Mark historically the head of the Christian movement. Why in the world would he do that? If he's trying to create this false religion, you just make that guy seem like he can do no wrong, but he doesn't. He records what took place. The disciples are nowhere to be found. You see, they were all amazed by their encounters with Jesus, but they weren't living in awe of him. Think about that for a second. We're talking about people that walked and talked with him for three years, saw him do amazing things, amazing miracles, brought their friends to him and said, listen, if I can just get you in proximity to Jesus, then you'll see he's the one. We see story after story of the disciples experiencing firsthand the miraculous work of God. They're amazed. They are awestruck. They are living in awe of Jesus when they have encounters with him. But they weren't living in awe of him. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that's a Sunday morning Christian if I've ever heard one, right? I, I go for, oh man, it's so amazing when I have these encounters with God. I can feel his presence. It's amazing what Jesus is capable of doing. I mean, I don't live my life in awe of him. I section him off in the rest of my week, but I mean, he's really high in the priority, like five or six, maybe. I'm not casting any judgment. I'm letting you know that I'm on the journey with you. That all too often, we are amazed by our encounters with Jesus, but we aren't living in awe of him. You see, they didn't think the resurrection was possible. It was unbelievable to them too. It was unbelievable to them. They didn't even go to check. They didn't even go to see. They were amazed when they saw him resurrect Lazarus. If you're familiar with the gospels at all, you know it records him calling Lazarus out of a tomb. So They have seen him raise someone from the dead. And they were in awe of it. They were in awe of the first, first-hand account of miracles done by Jesus. But who? Who could raise Jesus, though? They all thought it was over. They didn't understand the implications of what was taking place. They had Jesus in a little box. A box that we like to keep God in from time to time. 
where we let him out to be in awe and amazed with those encounters, but then we put him back in so that it, it doesn't affect the way we actually deal with our finances or our relationships or the decisions we have to make. I mean, my goodness, I'm trying to live a really important life here. What does the angel say? The angel, verse seven, says this. After responding and telling them that he's risen, he says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Because <laughs> Jesus even said that before he died. He said, I'm gonna die, but I'll meet you in Galilee. Let's meet up there. He says that. And, and the angel's reminding them, listen, this isn't over. I think what's amazing is it's not what I would have said if I was the angel sitting there. You know, people come in and they show up with their spices. I'd be like, what are the spices for? Are you guys kidding me? Are you serious? Did you think he'd be laying here dead? Were you not listening? Did you not hear what he said? You guys have zero faith. Goose egg. You're so lucky I'm not Jesus and I'm just an angel because I'd strike you jokers dead. Spices? Are you kidding me? How much money did you spend on that? Because you flushed it down the drain. Like, I would have been so frustrated at, like, this small-mindedness. And then I'd look at him and be like, listen, can you just do me a favor? Go back to the disciples. Because I've been here all night since Jesus, you know, got up and left this morning when he rolled out of here. I have not seen a single disciple. You tell all those jokers, they're betrayers, they're traitors, and we're sick of it. Jesus is angry. In fact, you know what? He can't even talk to you guys right now. Okay, he needs some space. Come back around in about a week and maybe Jesus can deal with you jokers. Like that's the way we respond to betrayal. That's the way we respond to, to people just not connecting the dots, what it is that we've communicated time and time again. But no, that's not what happens. That's not what Jesus instructs him to say. Jesus instructs him to communicate grace. Grace. Grace means you don't get what you deserve. It means you get what you don't deserve. And what I think is so amazing, and if you read it at face value, you might hear this. It says, you know, go and tell his disciples and Peter, the prior, the prior verse. Go tell his disciples and Peter. It, it almost seems at face value that he's like, because Peter's not a disciple anymore. <laughs> but of course, we know that that's not the case. So why does he say Peter too? It's actually huge. It's huge if you know anything about the way Peter's been functioning all throughout the book. Peter would say something like this. If, if they showed up and said, listen, Jesus is alive and we talked to an angel and he says he wants the disciples to go to Galilee. Peter would say, yeah, he didn't mean me. No, trust me, guys. You guys go ahead. I'm gonna stay here. I betrayed him, just like he said I would. He doesn't mean me. There's no way. And Jesus knows the, the frustration of our own heart, the disappointment in our own inability to live up to the standards that we've created for ourselves, that Jesus in his grace and mercy says, call the disciples and Peter too, because he's not gonna want to. Let him know, Peter too. Grace, grace. Listen, the resurrection means our sin debt has been paid, and by God's grace, we're forgiven. Even if we struggle with our faith, grace is within walking distance. It's right there. 
Jesus didn't die for you to modify your behavior or to try to create an illusion yourself of what it looks like to be a Christian on the outside and apart from him on the inside. No, he wants the truth of what it is that he has done, the historical reality of the resurrection to disrupt your life, to cause a sense of awe, that every day you'd wake up in awe of the truth and the implications of the gospel, that it would reroute your heart and your mind. Do you live in awe of that truth? Or are you believing a lie? Are you believing a lie that you're, that you're just not good enough? That, listen, I mean, Jesus, he loves everybody. I mean, except me. Hey, you don't know, guys. Not me. You're so wrapped up in the worries and cares of this world that you haven't allowed the truth of the gospel and the reality of the mission to saturate every aspect of the decisions that you make or you're just caught up in the worries and cares of this world because the doctrine of the resurrection means that there will be no more sadness, no more suffering, no more death, no more disease, that we have within us a hope for an eternity that is larger. So then why do we live for the lie that just these hundred years matter. Some of us, nope, all of us, me too, live as if the 100 to 120 years is all we get. But that's a lie. The truth is that we're living on mission for these years that we're given because eternity is all that matters. And that's why we see people hurting and dying and struggling all around us and maybe in the quietness of our own mind, struggling with the lie ourselves. That if we just get enough, if we just have people love us, if we can just get in the right groups, if we can go to the right school, if we can get the right job, then, oh man, then joy. Then fullness. Then, oh, finally, this is what I've been looking for. But it's a lie. It's so easy to believe the lies because the truth is disruptive, and yet the truth is freeing. If all of a sudden this world exists only for us to live on mission and leverage everything for eternity, man, all of a sudden some things really start to make sense. And joy is available, and peace is available. Why? Because even if our physical body dies, we have an eternity of fullness with him, and joy that's why the disciples went and they laid down their life proclaiming Jesus was the Messiah because they lived according to the doctrine of the resurrection and realizing this is not our one and only life. There's a future, there's an eternity. We say every week that the text requires something of us and I want us to walk away considering this as an application. What lie will I replace with the truth? What lie will I replace with the truth? You've heard us ask this question before as an application because it's way too easy to get lulled into the lies and the cares and the worries of this world. I want you to consider what lie will you replace with the truth this week? If you would, just close your eyes or bow your head so you're just not distracted as the worship team makes their way up. As you do that, I want to challenge you to consider some things. And if you want to keep your eyes open, you certainly can just look down on the floor so you're not kind of distracted. But one of the questions I I want you to consider is, as you can, I'm sorry, as you consider the question, what lie will I replace with the truth? There's some of us in this room today that 
maybe need to realize that the lie that they've been believing is that they can save themselves. That you can save yourself. No, I can, I can do this thing. I mean, if I get enough stuff, if I get enough money, if I get enough friends, no, I mean, that's really where it's at. You've been living your life with you on the throne. Today, if you want to surrender your life to Jesus, it's easy. It's not a, a rote prayer that needs to simply be repeated. But in the quietness of your mind, wherever you may be, wherever you may find yourself, in this room or elsewhere, you can just pray a simple prayer. Something along the lines of acknowledging the fact that you're a sinner. And that Jesus died the death you deserve. And that he rose again so that you could have life. Life to the fullest. Life eternal. Just say, Lord, would you forgive me my sins? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. I can't save myself. This world has nothing for me. If that's you today and you prayed that prayer, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Because we don't want this to just be an experience. We want it to be more than an encounter. So we want to walk alongside you with the other decisions that you may make and the things you may wrestle with in the days and weeks ahead. If you're not here with us personally and you can stop by in person at the Next Steps table, but for others of us that aren't here personally, you can email us or go to our website, the Next Steps area. We'd love to walk alongside you. For others of us, maybe the lie you're believing today is that you're not worthy of grace. That you're not worthy of his grace. It's a lie. Even the disciples that betrayed him, that denied him three times, Jesus said, I want you to come and follow me. That's the truth. The truth is, Jesus laid down his life for you. For you. The word of God says that he knew you in your mother's womb, that he knit you together. He loves you desperately, that there's a hope and a future. For others of us still, you might say, but I live in that. I I live in the grace And I realize what Jesus has done. For you, I would challenge you. Are you believing the lie that this world is all you get? That this is it? Or do you live on mission? In every situation, in every experience that you're so in awe of the gospel, and I don't mean that you in some way articulate uh, the, the theology of what it is that you believe or enter into spiritual conversations all the time. And if you do, that's fine, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a life that clearly is marked with the truth of the gospel, that you prioritize the things of God, that you lean in, that every day you're in awe of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's all be wrecked by the reality of the truth of the gospel and the lies we tend to believe. I want to lead us in prayer before we respond in worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you admitting that we settle for less, that we run after less that we give of our time, our talent, and our treasure for lesser things, for created things. That we just buy into the lie, Lord. God, would you, would you help us see the beauty of your resurrection? See the beauty of the cross? 
Lord, I pray that you would continue to mess with us throughout this week as we consider what lies we believe, that you'd whisper the truth. Father, for those that are bound by the lies of well-meaning people, of parents, of family members that have spoken complete lies into their lives, Lord, that we would experience the, the truth and the joy of the gospel and we'd walk into the fullness of what you've called us to. For your glory and our joy, Lord, we worship you. Would you stand with us? We're just going to start off with a, a song, just simply surrendering the lies that we believe. Would you sing this with us? <clears throat>
that changes everything. And so do we live responding to that, coupled with the grace that he awards us? Let me just pray as we close out today. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that your grace is within walking distance, that it's right there. That as we process the worries and the cares and the lies of this world, Father, that we would be able to, to walk in the grace that you award us. And that we would live our one and only life. One and only life to further your mission to do what you've called us to do, to take the gifts that you gave us, that you placed in our lives, and that by the power of your spirit, you enable, Lord, we are nothing without you. And so would we just leverage all that we are for the furtherance of your kingdom? Would you empower us as we leave this place to be a church sent, sent on mission, living for something greater? Father, we declare ourselves available and I pray that you would continually mess with us. That you would allow the truth of your gospel to just mess with us, mess with our priorities, reorient our heart and mind. We could live for something greater. For something greater, for something eternal. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can't wait to see you again next week. And uh, we're excited about uh, One Day to Feed the World. And um, if you have any questions about that, obviously, uh, seek us out. The, the team will continue to play if you'd like to just remain in his presence. And if you'd like prayer for anything, I'll be available. If you have any questions about next steps, you can see Eric. He's going to be out there at the next steps table. Um, otherwise, God bless you as you go, and we'll see you next week.